Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open discussion of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guest today is Peter Linneman. Peter is a principal at Linneman Associates, CEO of American Land Fund, and founding chairman of Wharton's Real Estate Department at the University of Pennsylvania. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on the uh, podcast today. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about your background. So what was the path you took into economics and how did you find yourself in real estate? Like most things in life, unplanned, right? So I was a blue collar kid from a blue collar town in Ohio in a blue collar neighborhood, et cetera, right? People didn't become professors, you know, a place called Lima, Ohio. As I say, it was a great place to grow up and a great place to leave. And um, I put myself through university. Obviously, a lot of people helped in that regard. And while at university, met an amazing woman, Dr. Lucille Ford. She's almost 100 years old, has been my friend since 1969 when I had her as a professor. She was the only female in her MBA class in 1946 at Northwestern, which says a lot about her. She flew solo planes when she was 16, was on five corporate boards and Fortune 500 boards in the 70s and 80s. And you get the point, you know, and she doesn't retire, retire till she's 92. Quite a life force. And I'm doing well in economics classes, but what did I know? And she said, gee, you ought to continue studying economics. You might look into graduate schools. And I end up going to the University of Chicago and going from a small, not academically inclined college to the University of Chicago with that was like a big jump. And uh, I was blessed to have uh, some great colleagues as students. And I was very blessed to have some amazing academics, the last of the ones I was really close to just passed away. But Milton Friedman and George Stigler and Gary Becker all won Nobel Prizes and T.W. Schultz, Nobel Prize. And George Tolley just passed away, was very kind to me. And these people were very kind. They were very demanding, but very kind. And I learned economics there and I learned how to think. And I'll tell you one little, well, you tell me if it's a funny story when I'm done. So I knew Milton Friedman quite well as a student. And he left uh, just as University of Chicago hired me to stay on their faculty for two years, it's like 1977. He left to go to the Hoover Institution. And he came back about five months, four months later, and I'm having lunch with him, George Stigler, Nobel Prize winner, Gary Becker, Nobel Prize winner, and me, nice foursome. You don't have those foursomes that often. And these guys were all very supportive of me. And Milton came back and said, ah, Peter, you know, so you now you think you're a real economist, you know? What are you gonna say to that, right? I knew it was not going to end good, but, and I said, um, I guess, you know, what you guys trained me, right? Something like that. And he said, what's the prime rate? And I said, oh, the prime rate is the rate that banks charge their best customers. He said, no, no, what is it? I couldn't have guessed it within 12 percentage points because that's not what you learn in graduate school, right? And then he asked nine other questions, and I don't remember what they were, but they were, they were how big is the U.S. economy? How many employed people are employed? What's the federal deficit? Those types of questions, the kind of stuff we're going to talk about. And I only knew one of them. I can't even remember which one, but it was totally by chance. You know, it was like I happened to read in the newspaper that morning the percent of the economy that was unionized or something. And he said something that stuck with me and had a big impact, which was when you can answer those 10 questions, 
and any 10 questions like them that an intelligent business person or an intelligent policymaker might ask you, then you can call yourself an economist. And that's been my journey, which is I'm all dressed up and I think I was a pretty good statistician and pretty good you know, mathematician and all that. But what's the point if I don't know, you know, et cetera. That was incredibly formative, you know. And by the way, how did I become a university professor? I became a university professor because I'm getting done with my degree after about three years, three and a half years. And my advisors say, oh, you ought to look for an academic position. Okay, fine. Okay. Which I did. And then they hired me. And then two years later, Wharton hired me away by paying me $500 a year more than Chicago was willing to pay me. And that's not exactly why I left, but it actually entered my decision. Oh, God, how <laughs> dumb, you know? Because if it was the right decision, $500 didn't matter. And if it was the wrong decision, $500 doesn't matter, right? And okay, you say $500 is the equivalent today of uh, what, 6,000, 5,000 or you know, 3,000 still. And I still tell students, young people that story, as if it's right, it doesn't matter. And if it's wrong, it doesn't matter, right? I'll give you another cute story. Life is full of cute stories. The cute story is in 1979, I had decided I was going to Wharton, faculty had hired, and uh, I got a call from the number two person at Scott Paper, which at that time was the third largest paper manufacturer in the world, and said, we told you a bright young person, we want to hire you as a consultant, okay? And the topic was on antitrust. And again, I knew textbook antitrust, but not. And I said, sure, which is a good lesson, right? Legitimate people, sure. And then he said, well, how much do you charge? And I said, $50 an hour. And they said, great. Oh, I should have asked for 70, you know, right. or some number, right? And by the way, it didn't matter because it all turned out well in the end. Right. And then two weeks later, Michelin Tire called me and same kind of conversation. And that started Linham and Associates. And then I got into real estate because we had an amazing dean, a fellow by the name of Russ Palmer, who was in his second year of dean. And Wharton's real estate effort was beyond embarrassing. I mean, seriously, I'm not joking. It was beyond embarrassing. And he said, I don't know where to kill it or grow it, but I know we can't do what we're doing. Why don't you kind of do consulting projects for people? Why don't you look at it for us? After all, I'm paying you already. So I did, and I said, it's under-professionalized, and, and it's going to become more professionalized, and we should be part of professionalizing. That's what we should do. And there's a lot of interesting questions and so forth. And he came back about three months later and said, well, why don't you do it? He said, I don't know anything about real estate. He said, you'll learn. So I took it on. Uh, and I contacted Al Taubman, who was the real deal, and Mel Simon. And then, you know, Al Taubman contacts Gene Cohn and, you know, Claude Ballard, who was head of Goldman Sachs and so forth. And these guys taught me real estate. We would sit for hours talking about what courses we should offer and what should be covered in courses. Well, ostensibly, that was for Wharton, and it was for Wharton, and we built a great program. But I learned because imagine you could sit down with the who's who of real estate of a generation for hour on end and have them discuss what real estate development should cover or what real estate law should cover or what, you know, it was, 
and I had the greatest teachers in the world at graduate school. I had great teachers as an undergraduate. And then I had this unbelievable set of teachers to teach me real estate. And then there was a moment, and then I'll stop, which was when the crash of 90 occurs, I benefited and Wharton benefited. We decided, keep going, keep going, keep going, because everybody else is going to pull back. Right. And right. so programmat, by the way, with a Band-Aid here, because you didn't have money, right, with a Band-Aid here and a Band-Aid there. But if everybody's pulling back, that's when you distinguish yourself. And in the industry side, I found out I knew things that these people didn't know. They knew a lot of really they didn't know what a balance sheet was. They didn't know that you couldn't do things 100 percent debt. Well, I knew that because I had done a lot of consulting on LBOs and so forth and coverage ratios and all that kind of normal stuff. And I realized I knew things that most of these people don't know. They know lots that I don't know. And then I became chairman of Rockefeller Center because one principle I believe in is if you do good work, somebody will eventually notice. How did I get that? I got my first couple of board positions because a couple of these guys noticed I'd work hard. I was a good learner. I had decent judgment. And they gave me a chance to serve on the boards of a couple of companies. One of them was Rockefeller Center. And there comes a time that Pete Peterson and Claude Ballard say, we think you should be chairman of the board. And you go, really? You guys think I should be chairman. I'm 42 years old or something. You guys are legends, you know, and you either step up or drop out. Right. Yep. And I stepped up and I'm not saying I was perfect. That's the journey in a way. And then it just kept going. And so I continue my Lineman Associates and Affiliates, which is advisory and writing and Lineman Letter and the Refia program and other things. We have masterminds we record. And I continue that part of my life and boards and so forth, but I stopped teaching 10 years ago. You know, this comes the time. And that was, you know, just was the time. I didn't want to be a bitter old man saying, kids today, you know. That was a great story about Milton. Good. I'm glad you like that. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone, any listeners who are curious about Milton Friedman, there are a lot of interviews, lectures, and debates on YouTube. And you'll be struck by listening to him or watching him about his ideas and intellect, but also his charisma. Oh, he was incredible. You know what? You're dead on. Those YouTubes, and you can almost pick any random one. I agree. Whether it's Phil Donahue and he's talking to housewives in the 1970s, right? or he's talking to the Harvard economics department, right? You'll see who he really was, what he really was. That it was really him. Gentle, kind, smart, demanding, thought everything two steps farther than most of us think things through. Most of us stop two steps sooner. And I learned that from him. So yeah, you're right. I've heard at the time, he was one of the first economists, academic economists, they're all academics, but that chose to reach out to the lay public aggressively without pandering right 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 and initially i think academics did not look favorably on the popularization or the explanation to people who weren't economists about these important ideas and since of course now he may be been the leader of this but there's many people out there that now oh yeah and it, it was incredible what he's, I mean, it, it was very, very highly intelligent and, and, and was able to explain these ideas very effectively. And you can see him in debates. He was difficult to debate against because he was so clear 
about his ideas. So you're 100% right. And it was my role model. Right? It was my role model. And in my head, there might be fancy formulas and graphs, but I'm explaining them as simply as I can in language. It doesn't do me good to know something and not be able to explain it to anybody. What's the point of that? Unless, you know, imagine I started talking Swahili now, unless we're doing an audience in East Africa, who cares? Right. You know, I mean, I have nothing that I'm helping people with. I'll tell you another lesson I learned inadvertently from Milton. So I'm three years out, four years out, have a research paper. I presented out at Stanford. I'm talking to Milton afterwards. And he said, but you know, that results wrong. And I said, well, you know, that's what the computer said. You know, I put the data in and that's what the result was. It's not important what the result was. And he said, but you know, it's wrong. And I'm thinking, well, this old guy, I'm 70 now. He'd have probably been about my age at that time. And I kind of go, well, the old guy used to be a great statistician, but he doesn't understand modern what we can do, right? I don't say that to him. He said, but you know, it can't be right because it's totally inconsistent with everything we know and uh, can't be right. Okay, great. Back then you had punch cards, 80 yep. columns, right? Kids won't know what we're talking about. 80 columns, and you had to sit, and you proofread them by holding them up to the light, right? Well, it wasn't what I'm going to tell you, but it'd be like. So I go back and I look at my data cards, right? And imagine I was putting in heights, you know, just, you know, six foot, five foot nine, you know, imagine I'm putting those kind of things in and imagine the mean for male heights, just for example. Okay. That wasn't what it was, but you get the point. And instead of having you six foot tall, I had you 600 feet tall uh, on one of the cards, right. okay? And I only had 400 observations. So imagine what one 600-foot person does to the data, right? Yeah, it'll push it around. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't know what it was, but he knew it was wrong. So guess what? When I changed the person from 600 feet to 6 feet, result went away. I used to tell that story every time I'd start financial modeling discussions. Because what young people tend to do is they quickly do Excel or are, and they don't check the wiring. So, you know, you buy at a six cap with 70% debt and rents are increasing 2%, NOI is increasing 2% a year, and you sell at a cap rate 50 basis points higher, and they come back and say the model gives you an 82% IRR. You and I know that's wrong. I don't know where the mistake is, but we right. know it's wrong. Doesn't that was not right. right. Can't be right. Can't be right. And the kids are thinking, well, these guys don't know how financial models work. And you go, go check the wiring. Yep. And then, of course, they come back late. And that's an important lesson for everybody is check the wiring. Always check the wiring. Let's talk about the economy. What is the current state of the economy? And what are the current effects of COVID? So current state of the economy, simple stated, okay? Real GDP, all I mean by that is adjusted for inflation, right? Real GDP today is almost identical to where it was February 2020. Now, we don't have monthly data, but if you kind of extrapolated where we were by February and you kind of say we're not quite done with this quarter, almost exactly. And if you say population has grown a little bit over that, so the total 
GDP is about the same. The per capita GDP is about a percent less than it was. But the point is basically the same in terms of GDP. Okay. However, if you think about it, GDP was growing at about two and a half percent a year. We've had now 18 months. So GDP actually should have been sort of 4% higher instead of the same. Good news is we've kind of gotten back, not quite back per capita, but it's below by about 4%, which means we have runway. We still have to catch up with what we're capable of doing. Okay, and that's all these bottlenecks, that's travel is not fully back and so forth and so on. All right, that's number one. Two, labor market. Labor market recovery always lags GDP. Why? Because I don't hire new employees. I try to get more out of my existing employees, but I can't do that forever, right? I have to eventually bring people in. So always it lags. And the question is by how much? So on the employment side, we are about, I'm rounding, 6 million jobs behind where we went in prior to the pandemic, 6 million jobs behind. So we got same GDP, 6 million jobs fewer. That, again, over that 18 months, we probably would have added two to 3 million jobs in a normal situation. So again, we have runway. We have population growth and such. So we have runway of about 4% of GDP to catch up on over the next couple of years as things revert. And we've got runway to catch up about 9 million jobs. Okay, why are we behind on jobs? One is the lag, but we're more lagging than normal. Why is that? Because from March till September 6, the federal government gave $300 a week to anybody on unemployment. They weren't trying to be stupid. They just did, right? Not even good, bad, or indifferent, it was. That resulted in an anomalous situation, which is if you were unemployed but not on unemployment, you had to go get a job. But if you were unemployed and on unemployment, you could make more unemployed than employed up to about $25 an hour. Okay, so if you were making $25 or less, you basically made more unemployed on unemployment. Well, who works if you make more unemployed than employed? I'll go back to work when that ends. Now, some people did. I'm not saying no one did. So uh, we should have about three to four million more hired by this point had we not had that. And there's a lot of ways to triangulate, but roughly three to four million. So a good bit of that six million job shortfall is due to the top up. That top up ended September 6. Okay. Some states ended a month early, but it takes a while because these people are just getting unemployment checks. They're not doing mathematical calculations and they knew they were doing well. And now they're going to find out they're doing half as well. Okay. And eventually they're going to take a job that way. So in the next few months, we're going to have a job spurt. We're going to have a big job spurt because people are going to take jobs and you know, the jobs, hotels, restaurants, blah, 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 blah. you just go through because it's basically $25 and less. It's a little worse than $25 and less. Imagine $25 the break even, where you're just exactly the same whether you work or not. It means if you make $26 an hour, you're really only earning a dollar. Right. 
And by the way, if you make 30, you're really only making five. And if you're making 35, you're really only making, you got the point, right? So it was more deleterious than it first appears. That's gone. And that will bring people back to the labor force. We know there are jobs. We have a record number of job openings way skewed to the lower end. The job skew isn't for uh, CEOs. The job skew isn't for nuclear physicists. There are openings for those people. I'm not trying to say no. The job skew is for those lower skills. So that'll be a good comeback. And that's important because not because those people will be making more money, but because they'll be producing something. Right. Producing something, generating something for society that will generate more, which will generate more. And just think of, for example, truck drivers. There's a shortage of truck drivers, and suddenly there won't. There's a shortage of loading dock people. Suddenly there won't be. That means we can load stuff more efficiently and deliver stuff more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera. So I look for a strong recovery in the economy. Those are two of the main reasons of this runway, the elimination. And Delta is the question, right? Delta is the question. Vaccines seem to be due pretty well, but not everybody's vaccinated. It's become the political issue of the day, right? I don't even know how that's true, but it is. But no doubt economically, it's a drag. There's no doubt economically. I was just reading the city of Philadelphia numbers, and it's something like 97% of deaths and serious illnesses in the Delta era in the city of Philadelphia are unvaccinated. So 97% of the deaths in ICU kind of serious illnesses are unvaccinated, even though I think the city's like 58% or something like that. It doesn't take a statistical genius to say that's kind of disproportionate. And I was talking to a friend who's on the faculty at uh, Cleveland Clinic, major medical. And two weeks ago, he was saying they have five hospitals in Florida. And I think my numbers are right. They had 389 COVID patients. One was vaccinated. 388 weren't. Well, that's a drag. Forget whether it's socially good and people die. That's a drag on the economy. And it's a drag in two ways. Those people could be productive rather than sick. And it's also a drag in that it makes me worry. Should I go to the concert tonight? Should I go to the ball game tonight? Sure. Should I eat at the restaurant? So it's a double drag, if you will. So that's a quick view of the economy. Along with strong recoveries, we often hear about inflation. Yeah. In the last couple of months, we've heard increasing troublesome predictions about it. inflation's on its way. You've said in the past that inflation has already been with us for a number of years, right? just in asset prices. Why is that the case? Okay, so two things on inflation. One, I think the big picture is what you said. The Fed pumped unprecedented amount of money with QE1, QE2, QE3 following the financial crisis. That money started coming out in 2015 in the form of loans. Those loans chased assets, not goods and services. We didn't get much goods and service inflation, got price of gold went up, price of apartments went up, price of warehouses, price of houses, some more than others, right? PE ratios went up in the stock market, private equity PEs went up, you name it. And you could find some exceptions, right? But generally, 2014 to pre-pandemic 2020, 
you just had unprecedented price inflation of assets okay, being driven in spite of not much consumer. And that's because that's what money was chasing. And people say, well, but, and so, no, no. And my research, I've done some reasonably sophisticated research on this. It's not definitive, but it's sophisticated. And it says, look, asset prices, yep, are cash flow matters, all that kind of stuff. But the multiple, the cap rate part is largely about how much money is trying to pile in. And if money is trying to get out, multiples go down, cap rates go up. If money's piling in, multiples go up, cap rates go down. And yes, there's income. You know, you need income to hit that with. And so, okay, that brings us to where we are. And let's play out the asset side. The Fed has even put staggeringly more amount of money into the system. And it's mostly sitting in the banks at this point because the Fed is telling them, forbear, use these reserves to cover yourself so you can carry people, et cetera, et cetera, until they're not aggressively lending it yet. The Fed doubles the supply of base money and you don't see a doubling of lending. So it's largely still in the banks, right? But it'll come out. I don't know all of it comes out, but imagine a trillion comes out over the next four years chasing assets that otherwise was never there to chase assets. It's got to have, or two trillion, it's got to hit asset prices. So I see cap rates secularly going down. I see treasury yields. Yes, if the Fed stops buying, treasury yields will go up a little, but they're not going to go up a lot because there's record cash holdings by corporations and individuals, and there's record unused capacity in the banking system that will come out. Fear has disappeared, but we're not in an era of greed. We're not in that you know, fear greed. How do I know we're not in a period of greed? If we were in a period of greed, why would there be so much unlent reserves? If we were in a period of unabashed greed, record staggering all-time cash holdings. I think if I went across to your listeners, basically everybody has higher cash holdings than they've ever had. You don't have staggering cash holdings and huge unlent money if greed is rampant. Now, the worst of the fear is behind us, right? So we've swung out of that. We still have distance to go in that regard. The second thing I'd say on inflation, go to the consumer price inflation. You see these headlines and so forth. Most of what you're seeing is anomalous in one of two ways. Either it's strictly reflective of how terrible it was in March, April, May, June, July, August, et cetera, of 2020. Nobody raised prices for anything in 2020. Toilet paper prices didn't go up in 2020. If you didn't raise toilet paper prices, nothing got raised in 2020 because everybody was afraid of being crucified if you raise prices, right? You don't know what's going to happen. But at the same time, there were prices that went down. Hotel rooms went down, airplane prices went down, and so forth and so on, okay? So oil prices were negative at the end of April last year and reverberated through the economy at single digit to low double digit, I mean like 10 to $20 a barrel low, that reverberated through the economy for months. Is it surprising that if we're back to GDP where we were, demands kind of where we were, that 
any year over year comparison is going to look bizarre, not so much because of where price is, but where it was, how low it was, right? Negative oil price to think of hotels. They went from 100 to 20 and they're back up to 65. They're still a long way from. So that's number one. The second is really anomalous stuff. And I'll give you two. One is lumber. Lumber went from, I think I'm doing from the top of my head, what was it, like 350 to 1800 by December to back down to like 500. What was that about? Everybody in the building supply industry, and I advised some of them, cut capacity in March, April, May, June, July, August last year of everything doorknobs, everything, they cut capacity, they shut down lines of production, they let people go, et cetera. Why? They didn't want, they wanted to hoard cash. They didn't want to get caught out. Well, you don't turn that on like a light switch, right? You have to ramp back up. So capacity, we had plenty of trees. Wasn't trees were the problem, but you did have a shortage of drivers and so forth and this and that, and it took a while to ramp up. And as that capacity comes, what do you think happens to the price? It comes back down. Okay, So that's what I mean by anomalous. And I'll give you my favorite anomalous is used cars. A lot of headlines on used cars. And in fact, last month, used cars accounted for 20% of the total consumer price index increase. So the total increase was, I'm doing all the time, at 5.3%. If all other prices in the economy had remained unchanged and all you had was the increase in used cars, you'd have still had like a 1.1% inflation rate just from used cars. Now, by the way, most people aren't even buying used cars. Why did you get that? Real simple. Last year, 2020, April, May, June, Hertz was going bankrupt. Avis was going bankrupt. All the rental car companies are going bankrupt. If you're going bankrupt, what do you do to generate cash if you're them? sell your cars because you can instantly generate cash. Problem was they sold cars into a market with no demand because who was buying a used car last April? You weren't looking for a used car last April, last May. So what you had was no demand last year and a staggering supply of used cars and the price of used cars plummet. Now, what do you think happens when the economy is back to 2019 to use cars? Well, certainly the demand's way up. That alone's going to push price. And the supply's down. Why is the supply down? Supply's down because the car rental companies are a major source of used cars, and they don't have any cars to sell. And you go, oh, got it. Totally anomalous. Real, true, but anomalous. It's not going to last, but you have to live with it while it's there. So that's the consumer side, is this kind of false and nobody raised prices in 2020. So you get two years of price increases happening this year. In my world of class B industrial, shallow bay industrial, the compression of cap rates over the last, say, four or five years has been stunning. You know, I get calls from brokers trying to buy assets and the cap rates just continue to keep falling. How low will they go? How long is this compression going to last? So I think you get another 10% general compression of cap rates over the next five to seven years. And the only reason I can't be more precise is I don't know when that money comes out. Okay. 
that's a combination of regulatory phenomena and stress tests and psychology with us on our cash. The cap rates in industrial, I think, are a combination of everything we talked about, you know, the weight of money. But as you know, it's been disproportionate in industrial, okay? Yes. So it's the weight of money, number one. But second, beyond that, industrial went from, it's not an institutional investment category, et cetera, et cetera, to it is. It is an institutional. Now, that doesn't mean the 30,000 square foot, that's not an institutional, right, in Topeka. But lots of the stock over the last five years has gone from being stuff institutional investors don't want to they do. And that means the weight of money from those institutions. They're allocating a portion of their balance sheet. Yeah, so they, they came out of, and by the way, what'd they leave? They left retail a bit right, and went into industrial. Not smart or dumb, just flow of funds, right? Right. And so you saw bidders by 2019 with institutional backing you never saw before, right? You just never saw that kind of institutional. But yeah, the California Pension Fund did some prior to that, but not big time, right? So the institutional. And the third thing actually took me a while to figure out. We got hired for a, Linnum Associates got hired for a consulting assignment. And you learn when you do these things, somebody wanted to do detailed research about four years ago, five years ago on the industrial sector. So we looked at it. And one of the things we figured out, and people in the business like you knew it, but wasn't broadly known, is if a shirt is sold in a store, let's say it uses one square foot of storage space in a warehouse, okay? But if it's sold online, it uses about three. And three is not mathematical. It depends on each kind of product and each kind of vendor and so, but as you know, you need wider aisles and assembly areas, and you need a different type of distribution out the back door. You're not just having a forklift drive through and taking a pallet. It's a very different kind of activity. So the dead space, if you will, the non-rack space is just bigger. Well, three to one is staggering when you think about it on something that has a positive trend, right? Namely, online sales. So what was happening was most of us, and I suspect you did originally as well, thought one-to-one. Okay, they're selling a shirt, but they're selling a shirt either way. What difference does it make for warehouse space? I understand what it might make for the retail guy, but what does it make a difference for the warehouse? And you know what you found is they needed more space. And you kind of go, well, that was curious. And then the next year, same thing happened. You go, what difference does it make where they sell a shirt's a shirt? And you got this big demand. And the supply has grown, but at a rate slower than the demand. By the way, I don't want to make three to one sound like it's formulaic. I'm right. just kind of giving an impression. You probably know even better and it depends on and it depends on. But three to one is, is we just don't generally think three to one. If you told me it was like 1.06 to one, who cares? You care, but nobody else cares, right? Right three to one. So what you've got, I did some kind of careful back of the envelope map. We basically have to expand industrial storage space at about 4% a year, every year for the next decade to meet the mapped out plan 
of general retail growth in light of the share going to online and general economic growth for ports and imports and exports. And so 4% a year, 4% a year in an economy that might grow 2.5% a year. Normally, we'd say that can't be true, right? Normally, you'd say, how can I need 4% if it's growing 2.5%? But we do. And that's just three to one. So your sector also is benefited from, you keep getting NOI growth, NOI growth being driven by this, what I call the three to one factor. And the biggest risk, the two for the industrial sector. One, real estate guys are eventually good at eventually overbuilding stuff. So if four is the magic number, 4%, we'll give us time, we'll, we'll get to 4.6. Yeah. yeah, right. Especially in Texas. We'll, right. we'll get that, right? Yeah. So I'm joking, but I'm not joking, right? But it'll take a little while because it's so far beyond the normal thinking of how can we have an economy growing at two and a half percent and need four percent, right? And again, it's not four percent in every market, obviously. But and the second risk is every morning somebody at Amazon saying, How can I get it from three to one to two point eight to one? right? That's their job. Because if you think about it from their point of view, if they could get the factor to be 2.8 rather than three, wow. Or if they can get it from 2.8 to 2.6. So the game is the real estate guys are trying to get up to 4% and the users are trying to get it down to one to one. And it'll probably cross somewhere in the middle in the next decade but there's good runway and that growth is part of what's driving those cap rates. Let's talk about office work and remote work. Do you think office is gonna bounce back to its previous levels and has remote work taken a big step forward? I start out my discussions of remote work by saying, I don't know if you have kids, but did they go to school remotely and how well did that work? And, you know, or grandkids in my case, how well did that work? And the answer is, If they're real young, it probably worked about 40% as well as in class. If they were older, like university or graduate school and highly motivated, it probably worked about 80 to 85%, depending on, right? And work is not so dissimilar, right? Work is about paying attention. It's about interacting. It's about interacting at the right moment. It's about being snapped out of your stupor at the right moment or the wrong, you know, all those things that people do. People ask me, what's the difference? I do some guest lectures. And the difference is when I'm in a physical classroom and I see 40 people and I'm in front of them and I see one kid nodding away, I take two steps in that direction. I don't do anything, but that brings them back into the moment, right? Well, that's the same types of things that are happening in a business in a different context, right? I'm on a number of audit committees, for example, and I ask our auditors, all the main people and our own internal people. And the general answer is, yep, we're getting all the work done and it takes about 20 to 30% more time. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, Who's going to pay for that? Right. So we can get the work done. That's not the issue. And we can particularly get it done in the short run, but 20% is a big load. And by the way, even if you get it down to 10%, right, that's still a big load. And so I think people come back because by and large, for most things, being in the office is more efficient. That's why people had it. 
Now, there were already a lot of people working remotely. You worked remotely while you were on the plane and in your hotel and while you were on holiday. And when you had to work on the strategic plan, you probably went home and hid for a day to kind of be away from interruptions. But when you needed to integrate new employees, that's the other end of the spectrum, right? And everything is in between. So I think we go back, uh, but not till it's safe. There'll always be a few. This image that everybody was in the office like it was a slave ship from Ben-Hur, you know, it's just wrong. I had two of my employees were working remote one or two days a week already. And yeah, I'm a smaller vehicle than most, but come on, I'm not that unusual. And we always had somebody working from the road. So did we make some steps forward? Yeah, but, you know, I have this phrase, if you ask a stupid question, you'll get a stupid answer. You're not asking a stupid question. What's the stupid question? These surveys that ask workers, do you want to go back to the office? Well, come on, that's a stupid question. Here's a better question. Do you want to go back to the office and continue to be paid like you're being paid, would you rather work remotely and get paid 20 to 30% less? That's the relevant question in the long term, not in the short term, but in the long term, that's the relevant question. There are exceptions, right? Salesmen were always on the road anyway and so forth, right? That's the relevant question. And I think most people would rather have the 20 to 30%. There'll be a few especially people my age, right? You're going to have some people my age saying, you know, I only got a year or two. By the way, I think I never die. I'm going to work till I'm 186. But, you know, people will say, I only got a year or two. I don't want to go back and deal with all that. And, you know, but um, yeah, that's the spirit. And I people go back and they go back. Right now, there's no competitive disadvantage for most companies of working remote. Because if we're all working remote, right? If everybody in Major League Baseball has a 70-year-old guy like me pitching, there's no disadvantage to having a 70-year-old guy pitching, right? Now, one team uses a 70-year-old guy to pitch and the other has a guy who's 22 years old who can throw the ball 96 miles an hour. Who's going to win? Now, I'm making a very dramatic differential to say, but it's the contrast. It's the contrast. Looking at over the next 10 years, where do you see the greatest opportunities in real estate? It could be debt, single family rental, REITs, development. Where would someone look for the greatest opportunities? Okay, so there, okay, and I'm gonna say one thing leading into it, which is as I am now 70, I realize that about once every eight years, a once in a lifetime event occurs. And so you always gotta remember, I don't know what the once in a lifetime, it's always a different once in a lifetime event. And sometimes the once in a lifetime event is good, like landing on the moon, right? But sometimes it's really bad, like COVID, okay, or financial crisis. So with that in mind, if you said to me, look, I've studied returns on different asset classes over long periods of time on 10-year holds. And again, these are not perfect studies. They're not definitive studies, but they're certainly highly indicative and carefully done studies. What we find is multifamily does pretty well. Why? Because if you think of garden apartments, if things get real bad, you can shut off the supply relatively fast, unlike high rises, high rise multifamily, a little different. You can shut off the supply growth reasonably fast. 
people come back, they do need a residence somewhere. Maybe it's lower price point than you thought. The economy does recover. There's a shortfall of supply for a while. Things catch up and you do okay, okay? And you don't have lots of CapEx and TIs and so forth and so on, right? So you kind of cash flow. And Freddie and Fannie, in addition to banks and life companies and so forth, means there's a deep capital pool. And back to the weight of money, I like to be in a deep capital pool. And by the way, it is an institutional class since the 90s. Okay, so the same thing. So I kind of like multifamily and Freddie and Fannie can do. I don't like at any price, but I kind of like multifamily by a little bit. Then I come to industrial and industrial has this fundamental for at least, as far as I can figure out, at least another three, four, five, six years that the supply is not going to get to 4% a year. And Amazon's not going to figure out how to get the three to one factor down fast enough. So you've got really good runway on NOI growth because it's going to be really hard to oversupply. And so five years, I think it's kind of almost impossible to oversupply. And I really would say anything's impossible for real estate developers, but I think it's kind of almost literally impossible. So you've got really good runway on fundamental income growth there in a way I can't see for most categories. Most categories you see like housing. Yes, there's a shortfall of housing production over the last 20 years, and that's great. But this three to one is just staggering with the growth. So I like industrial that way. And again, you can shut down industrial pretty quickly if right supply gets out of control. That's always been one of its thing. And it has become institutional. And I like that from a way to money. Doesn't have a Freddie or Fannie. And as a guy, as a capital user, don't you wish Freddie and Fannie were doing warehouses? Because it would just be a deeper pool, right? And non-recourse. And non-recourse, right. So I like probably industrial next best. And the two things that make me worry about industrial, one is this Amazon trying to get it from three down to 2.8, et cetera. The other is a lot of the users of space don't positively cash flow. You know, so you've got a lot of tenants, by the way, Walmart positively cash flows, but not the online part. So they've got a fast growing negative cash flow business that they hope will eventually be positive cash flow. There's a lot of that out there. Amazon positive cash flow, but on the retail, most of their online doesn't positive cash flow. So yes, you've got the parent on the lease. That's great, but it's very difficult. So there is that challenge. There is that challenge for the whole sector is at some point do people say we've pursued online profitability for 15 years and we can't get it. And therefore we're gonna have to do, I don't know, that's a risk. So I'd say those two sectors though, though most fundamentally. You published the Litteman letter. What does that cover? Litteman letter covers everything that I can think about thinking about We've been doing it for 20 years. We do it quarterly. It's a thick letter. We have different things. We have the economy. We have capital markets. We have real estate. We have thoughts of the month or of the quarter. We have some market close-ups. We cover all those. We try to cover them in a thoughtful way. People who read me or listen, by the way, anybody who's listened to me during this session, if you haven't figured it out, I could be wrong. I'm I'm not on the data right? Not on the data part. GDP is GDP, right? And so I'm not going to be wrong on that. 
but I could be wrong on anything that I kind of infer. Well, what I try to do in Lineman Letter is the same thing we do here, which is what's really important is why do I think it? Why do I think industrial is good the next five to seven years? Not do I think it's good. That's kind of uninteresting, but the why, because it allows somebody like you to say, well, that's not quite consistent with what we're seeing, or it's an interesting thought I had. So it's the why that allows you as a listener, as a reader, and that's what we try to do in Lineman Letter. We try to provide lots of data, lots of factual information that you can use as a one-stop shop and uh, on a regular basis, and some kind of thought-teasing things like the research on cap rates, like the research on 10-year holds, the research on 10-year holds versus three-year holds of investments and so forth. And But what we really try to do as much as possible is why. Why do we think what we think? And um, it's hard for me to believe I'm ever wrong, but my wife of 48 years constantly reminds me that I'm a bit um, delusional in that regard. So it's really trying to help people think once a quarter, if you will, and you've got a one-stop shop for a whole bunch of data. So you don't have to go scrambling around and scrambling around. That's what we try to do. Do you have a couple of books you'd recommend for listeners to read? Well, Real Estate Finance and Investment Risk and Opportunities, which is my book. Okay. I have a new book, just while I'm at it, coming out. Dr. Mike Royson of the Cleveland Clinic is the lead author. He's the head of wellness at Cleveland Clinic. And Albert Ratner and I are the co-authors. And my role was, so the book's about aging. And it's about the breakthroughs that are happening and are even going to happen faster in genetic kind of research. And um, just think of mRNA. I knew about mRNA before any of this because we were covering it. National Geographic is the publisher. It's called The Great Age Reboot. It comes out, I think, in January. And anyway, it's about how we've always been living longer as long as we don't poison ourselves, like with drugs or commit suicide and we can stay in any kind of decent shape, you're in great shape. But we may, within a decade, be able to turn fat so that it just burns a lot faster genetically, just genetically, right? We may eliminate hip replacements. I've had two hip replacements because they know how to genetically re-engineer hips and cartilage. They actually do know how to do cartilage. It's just they need a million times more cells than they currently inject. So it's a manufacturing process. So it's about that. Anyway, that will be a great book. If you said to me books people should read, Matt Ridley, The Rational Optimist, fabulous book, fabulous book about how in spite of the fact we constantly are being told the world's getting worse, it's generally not. I mean, we might be in a moment where it did get worse, but when you look at the general arc, certainly during World War II, the world got worse, right? And yet you come back, if you'd have told people in Europe at the, you know, sort of May 1945, what Europe would look like today, that would have taken a lot of imagination. So I'd say Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist. I'd say Milton Friedman, Free to Choose. You can also see that on YouTube. It was a PBS series. But it's timeless. The specifics change, right? The examples. He would not use the same examples today as he did in the 70s. But the messages are 80s whenever he did. So I'd say Milton Friedman's free to choose. And then I just finished, uh, not quite done, with Stephen Koonin, K 
K-O-O-N-I-N. He's a physicist at NYU. He was in the energy department, chief scientist under Obama's administration. It's called Unsettled. And he carefully goes through these IPCC reports on climate change and says they don't necessarily say what you think they say when you actually read them. And nobody reads them because they're 900 pages long, right? So who's reading them except somebody like that? So I think that's a good book. He's not a climate skeptic at all. He's just saying there's a lot of unsettled issues. And then Bjorn Lomborg, the Lomborg Project, Bjorn Lomborg, I believe he's a Swede, and I can't remember the name of his book, but if you go to YouTube, you'll find some wonderful talks by Bjorn Lomborg. And what he does is he points out that something like 1.5 million people a year die of tuberculosis, okay? And in that light, in the light of many other things, how much money should the world be spending on, say, climate change, which is about 75% of all spending on good is done on climate related, okay? Not saying right or wrong. His question is, in light of 1.5 million dying of tuberculosis or 1 million dying of water diseases every year. Now, and it makes you think, it makes you think about not is it existing, but there's a lot of problems and we don't want to be mono-focused in our, in our, and there is a tendency in all of us to become mono-focused, right? I only root for the eagles, right? right? Why would I root for anybody else? And so those are good. Those are all good reads or watches. Is it effective altruism? May, yeah. That may be, be the, the ideas behind, you know, what you spend your time and money on have it the most uh, most effect on the issues that, that provide the most benefit to society. Something along those lines. His point is in that quote, the obvious one, we just don't generally ask it, which is not can you do good, let's take electric cars, not can you do good by using electric cars, but how much good? Right. And how much did that good cost versus, I'm just making one up, I don't even think he talks about this one, we have a charity in, in Kenya, and one of our big problems is teen pregnancy. And so, for example, something as simple as the value of money going into electric battery research versus just providing morning after pills for teenage girls. And I'm not, you know, just I don't know what that math would show, but I know it's the kind of question that we want to ask on hundreds of things, right? What is the opportunity cost? What's the opportunity cost? Yeah. Charlie Munger's favorite phrase. Yeah. Everything is about opportunity cost. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much for the time today and your thoughts and your opinions. I really appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners will really enjoy it. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. And I thank you very much for inviting me. And I hope the people behind me in the pictures don't scare you. These are relatives from yesteryear. I don't know if you can see over my left ear that's my father is a little boy and up here on, you know, so you can probe my family while you're at it, as opposed to where I get to see the uh, Sydney Museum, which a uh, Sydney Opera House, which, gee, wouldn't it be nice to be able to go there again? Right? I, would. I wish we were there. Yeah. Anyway, but thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll put a link to the Lineman letter as well as all the books you recommended today. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Kindly. You have a great day. You can find Peter's contact information in the show notes. We'll also leave a link to the Lindemann letter and Peter's book recommendations. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. You can reach us at info at in-depthrealestate.com.